0: And welcome, everybody. I'm Jake Novak. This is this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Uh, a lot of things to cover this past week, and I want to get to uh, a couple of them, and then all leading into which is really the main topic uh, of this week's edition, which is wealth in America, income inequality, uh, understanding economics in a political sense or in the sense that we talk about it today. So everything's kind of kind of flow into that Main point, but before that, I want to talk about a couple of things. Uh, first off, make sure you're following me on Facebook, Jake Novak N O V A K. I have a couple of pages. One's a little bit more personal. The other is the uh, just really the stories, the the news stories feed. Uh, either one, you're free to follow. Um, and then my Twitter feed, which really has everything that exists in both of those Facebook uh, pages, and that is at Jake Jake N Y. At Jake Jake N Y is my uh, Twitter handle, or you can just go to it on Twitter. Type in Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K, and um, you'll you'll find it. You'll find at Jake, Jake, N-Y. Um, obviously, a, a big story politically this week is the end of the shutdown. Here we are Monday, January 28th. The government shutdown, which lasted 35 days, uh, is over. Uh, at least it's over for now. Uh, President Trump and the Democrats agreeing to reopen the government for at least three weeks while they hopefully negotiate something about the the budget, particularly the the border, security border wall budget. And of course, the original or the initial reaction a lot of people having is that President Trump caved to Nancy Pelosi, which actually, you could have said that a number of times during the course of the shutdown, because it was President Trump and not Nancy Pelosi and not the Democrats in Congress who offered compromises. By my count, this was the fourth compromise that President Trump had offered during those, 30, during those 35 days. The first compromise was, according to White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, right when the shutdown began, or even as it was beginning, President Trump came to the Democrats with some kind of dollar figure below the $5.7 billion he had been publicly demanding for, the border barrier, fence, wall, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that was rejected, uh, or not even discussed. Then he offered, as you may well know, that That big speech he gave uh, uh, just a couple of Saturdays ago, just last Saturday, where he offered to uh, give at least three years and maybe even more of basically a a, a hold or or amnesty, if you want to call it. I wouldn't call it amnesty, though, because it's just a hold on any deportation proceedings against what we call the dreamers, the children of illegal immigrants who came to this country uh, and are sort of now in that legal limbo. And uh, that was rejected, uh, totally out of hand, no, uh, a non-starter. Um, then President Trump, uh, later in the week, offered to discuss uh, su- some other uh, smaller, either a, a, what he called a, a substantial down payment on the border wall, and that was also rejected. And so finally, saying, "Okay, we'll reopen this government for a few weeks and see where we can go." Um, and as many people have noted, not just uh, not just me, there's been this double running narrative in the news media over the last few days that uh, is just contradictory and it's ridiculous. But this is what you're hearing. You're turning on the TV and on most of the stations you're hearing, Trump is obstinate. Trump is not making a deal. Trump's the bad guy here. And, and at the same time, they're saying, oh, and Trump caved. Well, you know, you need to pick one. Uh, and as former Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum said very well on the Anderson Cooper show a couple of nights ago, you know, you, ha- you can't have that both ways. Either President Trump caved or he's someone who's not compromising. Uh, But he clearly has compromised four times, four times during the course of that shutdown and the Democrats did not compromise once. Um, And no, most of the news media is not going to tell you those basic facts, even though anyone really paying attention should have heard it themselves. And uh, we'll see where this goes over these next three weeks. I I think that the best course of action now is for President Trump to spend these next three weeks saying... That reminding people that he has compromised four times, that he really does want to make a deal, and say that basically if he's he's not given this basic amount in return for a lot of things the Democrats want, including this DACA or Dreamer deal, then he should say, yes, I'm going to declare a national emergency and we will have this money for the wall, and let the Democrats try to challenge it in court, and maybe they will challenge it in court, even though the whole point is for them to try to keep the government open. It's just a, a strange, strange situation uh, and only the way that we have our news media now, and the only w- the way we have sort of our politicians now, could it work out this way. but I think president trump 's best course of action and really the best course of action for the country is for him to remind everybody how much he has compromised over the last five weeks and then and then just get this border security wall uh, taken care of i 've talked about border security here on Novak now on many of the past editions of this program, and you can find them in the archives. Um, but it's just a case of how we absolutely need better border security. That's been a bipartisan agreement for a, for a long time in this country. The problem is we never do it. We never do it. There's always a discussion about how everyone agrees we need better border security and we need this, that, and the other thing, and we don't do it. And then we go ahead and, and, and act as if we uh, yeah, do have it. So to me, that's really the best course of action for everyone, but but particularly for President Trump, but you know, again, also for the whole country. Um, so, and I think also it's really, really important not to get into this whole game of who won the shutdown battle, uh, because no one's won yet. Uh, again, a lot of other people have made the point that Nancy Pelosi has, has is you know got a victory on Friday, so to speak, but it's still the fifth inning; <laughs> it's not over yet. We've got another three weeks to go before we even uh, reopen this page book again. So, uh, nobody's won anything, and Nancy Pelosi has another battle on her hands within her own party where the far left wing in her party is really taking over. And she really couldn't make any kind of a deal because of them. And at this point, it hasn't hurt her all that much because the government got reopened. But if we get to a point where the government closes again, or President Trump starts to use things like declaring a national emergency to get certain things that he wants, and the left is forced to, to just sort of protest it again, then that will be a, a, a loss, whereas she could have gotten some things out of him. I mean, I think about this. If President Trump declares a national emergency and gets that wall funding that he wants, and that offer that he's given to the Democrats on the Dreamers, on DACA, is, is, isn't given to them because they didn't have to, because they didn't compromise, then that's a very big loss for the children of illegal immigrants who have been very much apparently backing Democrats for a long time. They'll have been really screwed on this. And I think that that's something to, to consider, especially, especially for Nancy Pelosi. I think she needs to come away with m- more than just President Trump having egg on his face. And I know his poll numbers are down the last week or so. Shutdowns knock down everybody's poll numbers, and they're, and they're going to find that Pelosi's numbers aren't going to be getting a big boost either. Uh, and if you've seen that in one or two polls, check the questions. It's probably not true. Uh, I think everyone's numbers are going to be a little bit down, and Trump will take the most uh, blame for it because he's the most recognizable politician in the world and in, in this country. Um, but there'll be a bounce back, especially if um, the economy continues to be as strong as it is, and it is very strong. Uh, Even Wall Street's starting to bounce back quite a bit after their very bad October and November. Uh, Since Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th, for those of you who don't know what Christmas Eve is, um, (laughs) it's been uh, been a a very strong rally on, on Wall Street, but that's really not the big story. The big story is we're finding out more and more that the American economy, whereas the rest of the world is a little bit up and down, the in some cases way down, the American economy is still going strong. So that's, that's what I think will have a bigger effect on, on Trump's numbers overall, uh, for those of you keeping track of that kind of thing. Uh, again, another big story that I want to focus on, again, this is all leading here on Novak Now, this week's edition, all leading into my discussion about wealth in America and, and economic equality and that kind of thing. But the second thing that really flows into that are these announcements by Democrats running for president. Um, In the last week or so, we've heard from Representative Tulsi Gabbard, who is a uh, actually a kind of a moderate Democrat. She's got some strange things in her past uh, as as a member of Congress that are a little bit weird, that don't really fall into the category of Democrat or Republican at all. For example, she seems to be very... Close to the Assad regime in Syria, which doesn't make much sense for me at all from either party's point of view. I don't really get that. But from a lot of other angles, Tulsi Gabbard uh, has been a moderate to conservative Democrat, for those of you who don't think they exist. Um, if you remember, during the last couple of years of President Obama's administration, Gabbard criticized him a couple of times on a number of issues. Uh, she has decided to run for president. I don't know what her if that's her real, if, if realistic goal in her mind is to to get a nomination or to or to get her name, or, or maybe just to get her name out there. Um, when you are in a place as isolated as Hawaii, and I've known a lot of people in my time who have either worked or you know who have worked in Hawaii or been there for a long period of time, and they've all come back to me with the same story, which is that it's great for the first six or seven months, and then you start feeling really isolated there. And I think even people who live there and have lived a lot of their life there. Uh, their lives there end up feeling that way, so maybe she's looking to just get more mainstream on the mainland of the of, of the United States, and that would not be a bad way to do it. Uh, so she has declared her her candidacy, um, and we've seen a little bit, a lot more attention given to Senator Kamala Harris from California. She has declared her candidacy for president. She formally did it on Sunday this weekend. And, again, she's a Democrat from California. She was first elected to the Senate just in 2016. She's very new to the Senate, following the Barack Obama playbook of being in the Senate for less than two full years and still declaring her candidacy, um, or just about two years, I should say. And she uh, has a tremendous amount, if you haven't noticed, a tremendous amount of interest from the news media. She gets a lot of attention. And there are a lot of people who are political pundits and are experts in the art of American marketing and persuasion who believe that she is really being set up to be the nominee for the Democrats by those who feel that they have enough power to get, make that happen. So I'm talking about people in the mainstream news media, and speaking of which, CNN is immediately going to do some kind of a live town hall event with Kamala Harris, I believe this week or certainly before the end of uh, next month, which is interesting that she gets that kind of focus so early on in her uh, candidacy. Uh, and there's a lot of other people who are talking about her. Now, I think she checks a lot of boxes for the Democrats. She is a minority. She is a woman. Um, and she's a senator, which gives her a little bit more of a of a, of a st- of stature than Tulsi Gabbard, who not only isn't a senator, but is coming from a tiny state like Hawaii. I mean, Kamala Harris is coming from California. Um, and... The funny thing about it is that she also had another story about her this weekend, this past weekend, which sounds really, really negative. And I think from a personal standpoint, it is very negative. But from a political standpoint, I'm not so sure. Um, former California State Assembly Speaker, longtime speaker, and then and then the mayor of, of of San Francisco, Willie Brown. Very popular guy among Democrats in California and popular among even a lot of just regular folks here in the country who remember him from his days. You know, he's 84 now, but you know, 20 years ago when he was the mayor of San Francisco and coming back and forth from the state house in California when he had that huge position there, he was really popular because he was just one of those straight-talking guys. He was really funny. Um, he had a great personality about him. And the story came out this weekend that he admitted, yeah, he dated Kamala Harris when she was in her late 20s, and I guess he was in his early 60s. And that was around the time that he got her her start in California politics. So there's all the Uh, Obviously, the inevitable charges that Kamala Harris had this relationship to get her way into politics, that this was a quid pro quo type situation, even though Willie Brown was married, Uh, all this kind of stuff coming out. And, you know, the knee jerk reaction is to say, oh, that's really negative for Kamala Harris. That makes her look like she, you know, used all kinds of unethical means to get to into politics. And absolutely, from a personal standpoint, I'm with you on that. But I'm with the folks who say that. But, you know, remember, Kamala Harris right now, is biggest her biggest uphill battle, and this is true of everyone who's running for office who already hasn't been a nominee or really a major household name, their biggest job, their biggest challenge, especially at this early stage, is name recognition. You know, think about the people who didn't have it and eventually got it going into a campaign and how long it takes for you to get there. You know, Bill Clinton, not really well known in 1991, but... As that campaign started to get going in 92, he started to get a little bit more traction, and then all the stories come out about him and his extramarital affairs, and that seems like it's going to sink his candidacy. But I think it really helped him, because it helped keep him in the news. All of a sudden, with all those Democrats who were running for president in 1991-92, his name started to get more and more of attention. Uh, and you could say it was for a totally negative reason, but it worked. I mean, who else got to go on 60 Minutes with his wife so early in the process going into the New Hampshire primary in 1992. And yeah, he had to defend himself against these allegations. And Hillary Clinton had to do the whole stand by your man, cookies, I don't bake cookies kind of thing. Um, But it made them very much in the public eye. And that's what you need, especially when you're running in a crowded field of candidates. And there's going to be a crowded field of candidates among the Democrats again in 2020, for 2020. So Kamala Harris, who's behind, and I know this because I do a, a, a lot of polling, for scott and i get to see all the data and write it up and i've been writing up the data on name recognition and favorability ratings for a lot of these uh declared and presumed democrat candidates and i've been doing this for for a while now and kamala harris is still kind of in fourth or fifth place she's still well behind bernie sanders joe biden and elizabeth warren when it comes to name recognition and in favorability so and she's way behind. For example, somebody like a Hillary Clinton, who may, or, you know, I don't think will run, but probably is is watching the race very closely for some kind of opening that she might try. But right now, I don't think she's she her default mode right now is to run right now. But but she, Kamala Harris, as much as you heard about her, if you have, is still way behind the Elizabeth Warrens and the Joe Bidens and the Bernie Sanders. And by the way, Bernie Sanders reportedly, according to Yahoo uh, News, is going to announce his candidacy any day now. So he is going to run, apparently, for 2020, which would be, which would surprise a lot of people who weren't so sure that at his age he would run again. Joe Biden, apparently very much leaning towards running, but not uh, official yet, and we don't have a timeline for him. But Kamala Harris is behind those folks by a lot in name recognition, and she's getting a lot of help from the news media. They're putting her on these town halls. They're talking about her all the time. And now there's a negative story out there about her, which will ca- accomplish the same ends, which will accomplish the same goal, which is getting her name out there a lot. Um, so th- you could make the argument there are a lot of both organic and, and and engineered factors going into making Kamala Harris a real front runner for the Democratic nomination. I think Kamala Harris is someone that the Democrats, the Democrat establishment, likes because again she's a senator from California. At the very least, she will keep a their most important geographic constituency happy. Uh, she's popular there and among the Democrats there, and she'll do that. And she will keep minor- the, the idea that they need to continue nominating minorities and nominating women, even after Hillary Clinton with the Me Too movement. They want to continue uh, keeping that some kind of a feminist agenda. And they're hoping to do all those things by going with her. And whether she wins or loses against Donald Trump in 2020, they'll have checked a lot of their boxes, and they'll have kept their... They're important base together and supportive of the Democratic Party going forward, and they ha- hopefully they'll, they'll say they'll say to those folks, "Hey, you, you still have a home here. If if feminism and and minorities and identity politics are your thing, we're still the place to go." So I think she checks a lot of boxes for them, and she's uh, very interesting in that way. But here's something that I've learned again from my polling for scottrasmussen.com. And again, that's not Rasmussen Reports. Scott Rasmussen did start Rasmussen Reports, and Rasmussen Reports still exists, but Scott Rasmussen left them more than six years ago. Uh, He had about a five-year non-compete deal with them, and so he couldn't start scottrasmussen.com until last year, which he did. And whereas Rasmussen Reports got a lot of their polling wrong during the midterm, scottrasmussen.com got it pretty much dead on as far as the Democrats taking the House and by how much they would, and, and the Senate going to the Republicans and them getting their gains there. So I urge you to, to log on to scottrasmussen.com. You'll see a lot of stuff every day, a tremendous amount of material. He does do a daily presidential tracking poll, by the way, and I just find him to be more reliable. I mean, it just it, not just because I'm working there. I, I just you know, it's one of, one of my many jobs. But I just find it to be very reliable. I've always trusted Scott Rasmussen. He was been a, he was a guest on shows that I that I was running for years on Fox and on CNBC, and just always found and, and read his books. I just find him to be one of the most reliable pollsters and pe- someone who really understands America better than almost anybody. Um, so, and one of the things I've learned during the polling with him in the last few weeks is that at this stage in the game, here we are, 2019, a full year before even the first primary. uh... At this stage in the game, it's much more important to follow the issues. So don't try to pick a candidate who you think is the best chance to win. Think about what issue that, if it really explodes, will help which candidate among the Democrats get that nomination. So if for some reason identity politics or something about minorities or, or, or really women explodes, for example, maybe some kind of massive new Me Too revelation that hits Washington. It could hit either party, by the way. It doesn't have to be a Republican embarrassment. It could be a Democrat embarrassment. It doesn't matter. Um, or a major industry, or if something big happens with uh, minorities, uh, maybe some kind of I- issue with, with, uh, with black voters saying that they are absolutely feeling left out by the Democratic Party and some of their leaders, leadership in the new Congress, something like that, then that will absolutely help Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris is in a very unique position there. Yes, there are other women running, like Elizabeth Warren and, and New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, but Kamala Harris, I think, has a corner on that, and... That would be her issue. I think if you have the economy tanking, you know, like I said just at the beginning of Novak Now here, the economy continues to be very strong right now. It's really rolling along very nicely. Uh, If that tanks over the next eight months, I would say, it would really have to happen before the end of 2019 because the voters would be in a particular state of mind. If the economy tanks in in any noticeable, significant way before, I'd say, the fall, or during the fall, that would really help Elizabeth Warren and to some degree Bernie Sanders as well, obviously, because they've really staked out that progressive economic stand, stand, and I think that helps them. So that's really where I want to lead into what I think over these last 10 minutes of Novak now, what is the main event really for this for this edition, and that is this discussion about economics and wealth, because Elizabeth Warren, who I believe would be the biggest beneficiary of an economic downturn, her candidacy would get the biggest boost from that, has, in the last week, done a couple of things that are very, very interesting, and in my opinion, very, very concerning, but typical, and, and, we, should take them as a, and we should take them as a good thing be- that we can learn from, learning, learning from Elizabeth Warren's uh, rhetoric. So just a few days ago, Elizabeth Warren announced that she wants a wealth tax. Now, this is a special kind of tax. This is not an income tax. For example, this is not her saying, hey, I want the richest people on their income to pay a higher percentage in income tax. She wants that, but that's not what she's talking about with the wealth tax. She's talking about going after everyone who has a certain amount of money, over $50 million or so, and taxing their existing assets. So in other words, you've already bought that house, you've already paid the taxes on that house, you've already paid the property taxes on that house every single year, but she's going to look at that asset and say, I'm taxing it again. On an annual basis and for example somebody like jeff bezos who the the founder and ceo of amazon who was the richest man in the world and obviously the richest man in the united states this kind of a wealth tax would cost him an additional 4.1 billion dollars in the first year alone now like many democratic party propositions these days that are, are of an economic kind this is being packaged as some kind of a new idea it's an old idea And it's an old idea, but when your followers and people in America from either party, but in this case, the Democratic Party, aren't really well-educated and don't really know about history, they, you know, go, you can, you can introduce all the old ideas in the world and say it's new. It's not. It's an old idea. For example, in France, they've had a wealth tax since the early 1980s. And it created a tremendous number of tax exiles. What that did is it took a lot of wealthy people who would have been creating jobs and spending money in France and got them the heck out of there. It didn't help their economy. It hurt their economy. France's economy has never really recovered from it. And yet they still have this thing in, in, on the books. And I remember as a, a young kid here in New York in the early 1980s reading about Guy de Rothschild who had moved to Manhattan and was a big member of KJ with Rabbi Luxstein, and then an actress named Carol Bouquet, who was one of the big uh, stars in the movie, the Bond movie, um, uh, For Your Eyes Only, but she was a big French actress in French-language films, and she got the heck out of there. And there was a long list of these people who left France, and they tanked the economy there, and it really has recovered. There's been, listen, obviously France has had its ups and downs since the 1980s. It's a long period of time. We're talking about almost 40 years here but it hasn't been good. They lost a tremendous amount of what made France a very special economic strong country within that part of Europe, within Western Europe. And so Elizabeth Warren wants to do this again. Obsensibly the argument is to reduce income inequality, to stop really, really rich people from hoarding the cash, yada, yada, yada. Then she made another statement, or later in the week, she singled out a very very wealthy person. I'm not. I'm not going to join in with her and single out this person because the person's probably got a lot of hate mail and death threats ever since. Some guy who bought a, a a yacht with an IMAX theater on it, and she just joked, "Oh, I bet he can. He can afford the wealth tax." What's he belly aching about? And I found that to be so disturbing on a lot of levels because what Elizabeth Warren doesn't understand or doesn't or is pretending not to understand is that that's exactly what you want the wealthy to do. Somebody had to make that yacht. Someone had to design the IMAX theater on his yacht. A lot of jobs go into a yacht. One of the reasons why even some billionaires don't want to bother with a yacht is because it is really, really expensive. It's very labor intensive. You've got to hire a crew. You've got to dock the thing. It's got to be built. I mean, you know, you can imagine what all the costs are involved. So you've got to be really, really rich to have a yacht because you've got to keep spending money on people and employing people. What's wrong with that? Would she rather have, for those of you who are fans of The Hobbit, would she rather have the very, very wealthy sitting on a big stack of gold like Smaug, like the big dragon in, in The Hobbit? Is that preferable? Or even if they are spending it on conspicuous tacky, gaudy garish stuff that's still employing people. It's still giving money to those who are less wealthy. That is helping to reduce income inequality. Okay? We want people to do that. We don't Want them necessarily to pay a tax to a government, and i don 't know what the government 's going to do with that money once they get it. Are they going to just give it to the poor people? Well hey that doesn 't work either, and let me explain why we have in this country in the United States we don 't have it really income inequality so much as we have wealth inequality because it doesn't even in, inequality doesn 't even really begin to scratch the surface of the problem that we have with people who make tremendous amounts of money and those who don 't. Why do some people make a tremendous amount of money and some don't? It's a simple answer. Because those who make a tremendous amount of money either have a tremendous skill or a tremendous product that they have that no one else has, or very few people have. And we do a great job in this country. Our laws and our economic laws and our tax laws and all of our economic constructs in this country do a very, very good job, I think, of helping to create wealth and also to preserve and grow that wealth. Grow your assets. So for example, you get some money tax-free every month if you're lucky enough to work for a company that has a 401k. It goes into your 401k, and that sucker grows untaxed until the day you take out the money or you reach a certain age. That really helps grow assets. Okay? And yeah, we've had ups and downs in the stock market and, and, and other markets that, that affect your 401k, but we allow you to grow your assets really, really nicely. And the same thing with IRAs and a bunch of other ways that once you have the money, you can grow it tax-free. But what we don't have in this country are the tools that we need to give people to get an income in the first place. Now, taxing really wealthy people and giving their money to poor people is not going to help them after a certain amount of time. It doesn't do much. What we really need to do in this country, and in every country, is to provide people with the tools to make a better income in the first place. And, of course, that's education. Now, I once sat down with one of the richest people in America. His name is Ken Griffin. He's a, the, 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 he runs the Citadel Hedge Fund. And you might have seen his name in the news this past week because he bought a bunch of mansions both here and in Britain. He bought the most expensive home ever in America. He's bought, like, several floors of a, of a big apartment building in Manhattan. It's something like a $200 million home that he bought. I, I once asked him, this was about six, five or six years ago, I said, what's the biggest thing? Mr. Griffin, what's the biggest thing that's holding back the economy here? And I thought he was going to say taxes. I thought he was going to say regulation. I don't know what... And he ended up getting really, really serious and going on for a long time about our education system. He said, I can't hire people at my hedge fund in Chicago who graduate even with good grades from a high school, even for a small job there. And a lot of people in college, I can't hire either. Because the education tools that we're giving, the, 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 the tools that we would give people other to make a good income, to make a Ken Griffin-sized income, we're not giving it to them. You got to either be born with it or your parents have got to give it to you, etc. It doesn't happen. So wealth taxes and taking money from the wealthy and giving it to the poor, it doesn't help. Either that money is going to be squandered or or the government will never give it to them in the first place. We need to do things to improve the skills of our people so they can make a good income in the first place. And if we would spend some time on that and a lot less time on talking about how we're going to tax the wealthy and talking about how we're going to protect the assets of the wealthy, we would really get somewhere. I can talk more about this and you'll see more of it on my feeds. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now. I'll speak to you again next week.